Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society at Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today we're joined by the Irish Ambassador to the United States, Ambassador Geraldine Byrne Nason. Ambassador Byrne Nason has led a distinguished career as a public servant for many years now. Prior to her appointment as Ambassador to the US, she held the title of Second Secretary General in the Department of the Taoiseach from 2011 to 2014, as Ambassador to France from 2014 to 2017, and Ambassador to the United Nations from 2017 to 2022. It was during this time that she led Ireland to a seat on the UN Security Council, the organ of the United Nations charged with promotion and maintenance of international peace and diplomacy. Today, we explore the ambassador's entry into diplomacy, the abolition of the marriage ban and how it opened up Ireland's diplomatic service, the role of the United Nations, the shortcomings of the veto power held by permanent UN Security Council members, Ireland's disproportionate influence in the halls of American power, and the ambassador offers advice to Irish diplomats of future years. Ambassador, thank you very much for coming on the Bramcast. Pleasure to be with you this morning in Washington. I know it's a bit later in the day in Dublin. Very good. So, Ambassador, take me back in time to when you were graduating from Maynooth, you were entering the working world. Was it always your ambition to get into international diplomacy? I'd love to say it was, so it would make me a very determined and uh, a focused individual. No is the answer. I was um, uh, a literary uh, grad, as it were. My, my focus was on literary criticism in particular and was quite determined to pursue an academic career. And in a way, I took a road less travelled in the sense that I was uh, obliged to look at career options from a postgrad scholarship I had, and the rest is history. So I, was, I didn't start out thinking I would end up in the world of diplomacy, but I've never regretted it. Okay, so how did you navigate your career then to end up in diplomacy um, today? Well, frankly, I mean, the entry point for any diplomat in Ireland is through public competition. So uh, a graduate, as long as the grad has a, a certain level of attainment in, um, in, the, uh, in her or his or her degree, can apply to the public service, which is what I did. Um, really under recommendation. It's a competitive process. And once you're in the diplomatic stream, then in the Department of Foreign Affairs, you uh, basically follow a career path, um, moving through, in my case, a mix of posts from what we call bilateral uh, posts, where you're representing Ireland and her interests to one other country, as I'm doing here today in the United States or what we call the multilateral route, which I did also a lot of in my career, which is where we take Ireland into a bigger environment like the UN, 193 countries, or the OECD, or the EU, where I spent time as ambassador also. So I have a, had, had a career that has had a mixed uh, approach. Um, the Irish Diplomatic Service, as you'll well know, to scale is smaller than a lot of other diplomatic services. It's also, I think, uh, for the better, a diplomatic service that is entirely a career service. You can actually join the diplomatic service nowadays from other parts of the public service and indeed later in career. Um, when I joined back in the early 80s, 
most people who came in were coming into the diplomatic service really as young grads or postgrads. That's all changed now. I see. Um, I'd like to explore the differences between multilateral diplomacy and specifically with one other country. But perhaps one other question on the start of your career. You entered public service at a time not too far after the abolition of the um, public service marriage ban, which forbade married women from working in the civil service. How did the abolition of that change your career prospects and the way you thought about your future in, in the public service? Well, it was, a, it was a very significant development. If you think about when I joined uh, Department of Foreign Affairs in 82, um, the marriage bar had been less than a decade gone. So the look and feel of Ireland's foreign service did not reflect the look and feel of Ireland's society and um, of the island. So there were actually very few women in senior roles. So when I joined the department, there was actually one female ambassador at the time. I'm proud to say that today, more than 50% of Ireland's missions abroad have women heading up those missions. That shouldn't be a spectacular reflection. It reflects what our island looks like. We are 50% uh, women on the island. We occupy important roles in the labour market generally. So when I joined the department, it was a bit of an unusual environment. It was certainly a much more male environment. Uh, there was a sense that um, young women joining the department, there had been a tradition of young women not staying in the department uh, because of the marriage bar. So I think the system was just settling into getting used to having women rise through the ranks. But I will say that my own direct experience personally was that once the, the structural barrier, and I often say this to other uh, colleagues from other societies, to say, how did women elect women presidents in Ireland? How did uh, women rise in the diplomatic service? I always say once the structural barrier is gone, really then women are well capable of establishing their place. In the diplomatic service, it took a while. Obviously, I've been a number of decades, I'll leave it as general as that, doing this job. So um, even two decades ago, um, we did not have um, what I would regard as an equitable representation of women at the top levels. But that was in a way a generational demographic evolution issue as much as any internal issue. So I think uh, successive secretaries general, including the current secretary general of the Department of Foreign Affairs, have been very vigilant about making sure that um, the diplomatic approach, the diplomatic uh, um, career path is fully open to women. With all that that implies, because it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an unusual career path for a man or a woman, and particularly when it comes to family. So fast forwarding now to um, when you were appointed the Irish ambassador to the United Nations. Like you said, this was a role that had... Um, was dealing with multilateral partners in the United Nations. What was your day-to-day -day like when you were when you first went into that role? Well, first of all, I was uh, appointed at a time like no other in a way in 2017 when we were on the eve of launching a campaign in the United Nations to get Ireland elected to the UN Security Council. So I spent uh, over five years at the UN very much marked by the first half a campaign for election and the second two years sitting representing Ireland on the Security Council. It's very different 
to be in a very uh, diplomatic, heavy environment. So my correspondents, the people I dealt with every single day, were representatives of government. At the UN, I didn't have direct engagement like I do in Washington with the business community, or indeed really very much with the Irish community. My job was to put Ireland's foreign policy in all its dimensions, whether that was disarmament, Middle East, uh, our humanitarian policy, our peacekeeping policy, out there on the table in lights with other member states of the UN to show them that we were capable of taking on the responsibility to represent the UN General Assembly at that top table of diplomacy. It, so it was a very tough job. First of all, just for uh, you know curiosity, getting to know 192 other ambassadors by their first name. Every politician will tell you when you ask for votes, you need to know who you're asking. So that was just a practical challenge. We also had a um, very determined effort on the part of the government and the ministry in Dublin to build up a really strong A team in New York where we would run a, a campaign. We were in what was called the group of death. There were two seats up for grabs and there were three countries. And the other two countries, including Ireland, were uh, Norway and Canada, two very well established, in the case of Canada, G7 country obviously countries with deep pockets. So it was a big challenge, but it was an amazing experience. And happily, we were elected uh, and took up our seat in 2021-22. And not only were you elected, you were, uh, Ireland was granted the presidency of the Security Council. Am I right in saying that? That's right. We had the presidency for one month um, of our, our term on the Security Council, which puts you really uh, in the in the eye of the world, as it were, so that you're you're the caretaker of all that goes on. In fact, the director in many ways of all that goes on during that month. We were in the presidency for the month of September of 2021, which also is a very particular month in New York. For anyone who watches the UN Rhythm, you'll know it's the month when all of the heads of state and government from right across the globe gather in New York so we were, you could say, on the one hand, in the spotlight, or you could say in the eye of the storm. But I think we acquitted ourselves very well. Um, I want to say that a couple of things we did during that uh, term as president were very reflective of what we wanted to be seen to be on the Security Council. So we brought more civil society, in other words, non-governmental voices, to that table than any country had ever done during its presidency. And of those civil society voices, we brought more women. And I haven't checked this morning, but until a couple of weeks ago, that's a record that still stood, even though Ireland is, of course, no longer on the council. We also made sure um, that our, when our ministers, the Taoiseach, the Taunish, they came, that they were in a position to address the issues that are very deep in Ireland's UN DNA, and peacekeeping is a very clear example of that. Um, you know, for uh, for six, over 60 years now, Ireland has been, without a break in our service record, the longest standing, unbroken provider of peacekeepers across the world. We're also, when you look across the European Union, for example, per capita, we're the biggest providers of peacekeepers. 
that's a real badge of honor. You know, there are many ways that you can try to uh, assert your moral authority uh, on the global stage, but putting your own women and men on the ground to keep the peace in dangerous parts of the world is second to none. Uh, that actually shows your moral fiber. And Ireland has absolutely a stellar record in that regard. So we passed a, a remarkable resolution during that month as president of the Security Council um, that will, I think, stand really in, in terms of building the future relationship of peacekeepers to the evolving situation on the ground. It's a technical thing. It's called the transition period where peacekeepers leave and politicians come in in a conflict situation. But it's highly volatile and sensitive. And so we took all those decades of experience and brought them to bear. Um, and the last thing I'll say about that month, which so went a little bit under the radar, maybe, is that we made a commitment going to that uh, Security Council seat that we would work on climate security, something that we believe is a, is a, a responsibility of the Security Council. If climate and what we're seeing in the Sahel, you've just seen now, Syria and all these coups in that region of Africa, if climate doesn't breed instability, you know, what does, frankly? It's very clear that climate is a source of instability. We see countries like Myanmar uh, and others, Pakistan, suffering very seriously from climate instability. We wanted the Security Council to take that role on. That was something that we put to the vote, we worked very hard on that and put it to the vote a little bit later than September, but the big push was made by our ministers at the table in September and Russia vetoed that. Now, we were, you know, it was the, the highest supported uh, UN resolution ever in terms of members of the General Assembly and China abstained on that, which actually was an important signal from China but uh, unfortunately, the resolution didn't go through because of the veto. And that's a whole long story around um, the use of the veto at the council. But we were very proud our presidency launched that too. It seems as though Ireland was able to punch well above its weight for a, pop a country of a fairly small population up against countries like the States, Russia, China. Is it a, um, a misconception that the UN is just you know, at the behest of those countries and that smaller countries can't make a difference? Um, and how does the veto play into that um, perception? Well, look, very. you go to the heart of some of the, if you like, the frustration uh, around the way the UN works, but also the opportunity it gives for a country like Ireland. On the opportunity, you know, we certainly felt that everything we set out to do as a member of the Security Council, we delivered on. Um, we impor importantly brought a strong humanitarian and human rights dimension to everything we did, and we found our way through. I'll mention two examples of that. One is in relation to a horrific humanitarian crisis in Syria with almost the population of Ireland, over 4 million people on the border in northwest Syria, um, uh, victims of a, an ongoing, if, if low-intensity conflict there, just keeping a border open to deliver food and medicine to those people was a huge responsibility. We took that on on the Security Council, 
And there, when you talk about a small country having to manage, we are inter our our the two countries we had to negotiate most with there were uh, Russia and the United States. And basically, Ireland and Norway, we were what we called the pen holders, so responsible for that resolution. Um, we had a long and difficult passage, uh, up late nights, uh, early mornings, uh, tough, tough, will we, won't we moments in the negotiations. But we delivered each time to make sure that that border crossing stayed open for those people. So small country in with those big giants who have you... If, You'll remember this the uh, in the latter half of our tenure. So February twenty fourth stands out as the moment that uh, Ukraine was invaded by Russia, and also stands out as the moment on the council when everything shifted. So you know we had a very difficult job after February the twenty fourth. The Russians and the Americans, of course, weren't speaking to each other. So that shows how a small country like Ireland, and indeed hand in hand with another small country like Norway. We were able to deliver on that. Is the UN and the veto uh, situation, um, you know, in a way an obstacle? Yes, um, for sure. Um, one of the other areas that we worked on very hard from a humanitarian point of view were the, was the situation in Afghanistan and on women and girls and their human rights, their humanitarian situation. Above all, of course, as we know, their right to education. We faced in anything we did on that, the prospect of very clear vetoes coming in uh, from both Russia and China on our efforts to uh, insist that the Taliban um, be brought to heel uh, in terms of their uh, commitment uh, to human rights for women and girls in Afghanistan. I'm mentioning that as an example. To step back, the veto is a, an instrument that we believe is anachronistic and uh, should be abolished. Um, it's wielded by five members of the 15-member body, um, most used by Russia. Um, China also has uh, very little qualms about using the veto. The, uh, the US, of course, in the past has used it a little less frequently recently. France and the UK stand out having um, abstained from using that veto for a couple of decades. While we were on the council, we, we, because of our frustration with the veto, we saw what it did on climate security. We saw what it did on the rights of women and girls. We saw what it did um, on some of the other important dossiers like the Middle East. So we decided to join forces with another really tiny country in the UN, Liechtenstein. Um, which was driving forward in the bigger parliament, the General Assembly, an initiative not to get rid of the veto, because we recognise to get rid of the veto, the, those who use it on the council have to vote against using it. So we recognise the odds are stacked there. But in the General Assembly, where most member states abhorred the veto, we helped to run uh, a resolution that said any time the veto is used, the country using it must be accountable to the wider body of the UN. You must come and explain yourself. Now, that's in a way moral opprobrium. And um, you could argue that a country like Russia may not be embarrassed by standing up 
But frankly, it's at least a chink in the armor. And I was very encouraged by that resolution because, frankly, the other, the three um, countries that I've mentioned, the US, the UK and France, all of whom, you know, are permanent members entitled to use the veto, they supported that resolution. So I think if there's a reform of the Security Council, it's a, it's a tall order, negotiations ongoing for a very long time, the veto should be addressed, but also the composition of the Security Council should be addressed. I'll finish up on this by saying we think the anachronistic formation of the Council is also um, a standout political embarrassment, really. Um, you know, there is no permanent seat for Africa on that council. There is no permanent seat for countries from the small island developing states who are faced with big existential crises around climate. So, so there are lots of things that could be done to make the Security Council more effective. Absolutely. I suppose that the United Nations stands as one of the defining achievements of humanity in the 20th century. Perhaps the reform of the Security Council could one day be the defining achievement of the, the 21st century in that regard. That's over to you and your generation. I'll be right behind you. Hopefully we'll do our best. Um, moving on now to your present role as the Irish ambassador to the United States. Ireland seems to wield a very disproportionate influence in the halls of US power to any other country of our size. How did Ireland get that clout in the United States? And how is that relationship maintained um, in the present day? Well, look, first of all, it's the privilege of a lifetime for me to be here representing Ireland uh, to the United States. When I arrived, I was told by a very senior uh, ambassador here, everyone wants to be the Irish ambassador to the United States. So the word is out. You're right. We have uh, a very large footprint here in Washington, but right across the US. I will say to you just uh, for the visual image of Ireland in the United States, of course, we have our embassy, a highly effective team here in Washington, but we also have eight consulates right across the United States. So Ireland's footprint in the US starts in, in the places you'd expect uh, in New York or in San Francisco or also in the big Irish cities of Boston and Chicago. But we're also very much 21st century on the move here in the United States. So we most recently opened a consulate in Miami in Florida. So a very different look and feel to our mission in Florida. We opened a few years ago in Los Angeles. Again, another completely look and feel, new look and feel for Ireland. And we're in Atlanta and we're in, in Georgia and we're also in Austin, Texas. Why are we, to use your term, disproportionately uh, influential here? Of course, there's a big historical route to that. You know, um, Irish emigration to the United States is something many of your listeners will be very familiar with starting actually in the 18th century, but the big move of Irish people into the United States, mid-19th century. And if you look at a, a family, for example, just like the Kennedys, I was recently at the Kennedy Summer School in New Ross. You know, within three generations of leaving the shores of Ireland, the Kennedys were in the White House. So the first point historically is to say when Irish people arrived in the United States, they wasted 
no opportunity politically or economically. Today, there are over 30 million, three zero million Americans who claim Irish heritage. So we have a, a deep um, historical relationship with this country um, that counts for a lot in terms of Irish political involvement. When I go up onto Capitol Hill, as I do every week here, um, uh, advancing Ireland's interests, I'm as likely to run into somebody whose name is Murphy or uh, O'Brien or Hadley or, uh, you know, even names you don't expect. Uh, the great uh, uh, Speaker of the House, uh, now Speaker Emeritus Nancy Pelosi, has three Irish grandchildren. So Ireland is embedded in the political system here. And also, um, and so that, of course, um, uh, is, is an important point. But also over time, 40, we've had 43 pre 46 presidents of the United States. 23 of those 46 claim Irish heritage. I've mentioned President Kennedy. We're all very familiar, for example, with Ronald Reagan, who came to Ireland when I joined the foreign ministry in the mid-80s. Um, we also have had spectacularly Bill Clinton's commitment and the Good Friday Agreement. Today, we have the most Irish of presidents in Joe Biden, whom I was honoured just to accompany to Ireland. So we have it dotted throughout the political system, but also a man like President Joe Biden, who pins his Irishness to the mask very clearly and is very committed to supporting Ireland. The second point I'd make is that economically, we have a very um, embedded, I would say, uh, integrated relationship. The United States is Ireland's number one foreign direct investment. So over 200,000 jobs in Ireland are directly funded by U.S. foreign direct investment into the country. And that's an evolving, it's not a, a sort of a, a once-off, uh, establish a multinational and move-on relationship. It's now a very organic relationship. So many of the very exciting, dynamic uh, startups in Ireland, whether you looked at Galway or Cork or on the Grange Gorman uh, campus in Dublin, they're growing now around those big investments. And I'm hearing more and more from U.S. investors that they are excited by that ecosystem we've developed in Ireland. Our influence grows from that. But also the U.S. see us as influential in Brussels. And I think that's an important point to make about Ireland's, you called it disproportionate. I'm beginning to think we've earned this, uh, this influence in Brussels, where we sit at the table in Brussels. The EU-U.S. relationship, particularly on the trade front, really, really important. The regulatory environment that we help to shape in Brussels matters hugely to U.S. investors. But I'd also say that a lot of Irish people don't know that given our size, I will allow you disproportionate on this one, given our size here, Ireland is the ninth foreign direct investor into the United States. So that means if you think of all of the big players across the globe, the G7 plus, Ireland comes in in the top 10 countries who come in here, set up businesses, create jobs. We're in all 50 states um, and we have at the moment over 100,000 jobs supported by Irish investment and on the move. 
So I think when I painted it, historical, across the aisle, political, economic, and above all, I'll, I'll finish on this, that's all anchored by where it begins and ends for me in the people-to-people relationship. You know, there's something just deeply uh, intimate in the way Irish and American people uh, associate with each other. Irish America has, over time, backed every government, uh, every administration here in bringing peace to the island of Ireland. If there was a big standout issue for us in the last uh, number of decades, of course, it was Northern Ireland and bringing peace to the island. The United States never left our side and is still with us as we struggle today to finish off that job. So Irish America has kept vigilant, kept watching that and worked with us. We have more, I'm sure you see them around the campus in Trinity, we have more US semester abroad students in Ireland per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, We'd like to see even more uh, US students, US young grads come over for the working holiday uh, agreement that we have. We know that a lot of Irish people would like to come in here early in career and that visas are a challenge here. We're working on that every day. Immigration reform is needed. It's a political environment that's tough here. But just to say we work on it every day, but it's a wonderful relationship. Very good. It seems um, um, a question I had written down was, do we make use of it? But by all accounts from your description, we very much do. Um, And it seems that Irishness is very much intertwined in a way in America that isn't appreciated by many. Something comes to mind when you're talking about, you know, the, the across the aisle appreciation of Ireland and um, the clip of Donny O'Sullivan, the CNN man going to a Trump rally, bitter, bitter, you know, toxic rhetoric. And one of the Trump supporters sat singing Danny Boy. It was a very, it was a, a blissful moment almost. Totally. Well, look, you know, you put, you put your finger on something that is unique for Ireland here. And I really, I use the term advisedly. There are very few issues today in the United States that are across the aisle or bipartisan. Ireland is one of them and Northern Ireland remains one of them. It's a huge asset to us. The Friends of Ireland on Capitol Hill have a, are double-hatted. So there's a, a Republican and a Democratic co-chair of that group. I was just back in Dublin. You won't have missed Notre Dame Navy uh, football game a couple of weekends ago. Um, a spectacular occasion. We had hundreds of U.S. legislators in Dublin, in particular the federal level ones who came in from Capitol Hill. They were a complete mix of Democrats and Republicans, all equally interested and willing to support us and to listen to us. It's a really important thing. Donny captures it in a wonderful way um, as he goes around the country. And he's a great spokesperson, a great ambassador indeed for Ireland here. Very good. Um, one final question now before I let you go, Ambassador, and that's um, what advice would you give to the next generation of Irish diplomats, of Irish public servants, um, particularly in respect of in an environment like the United Nations, when you're dealing with countries and dealing with people with often diametrically opposed um, opinions and often morals? How? What advice would you give to the next generation? Well, I, I think that You know, Ireland has very strong uh, credibility on the international 
international stage as a country that itself, to use a term we've just used, can work across the aisle. There are very few countries that, as Ireland could on the Security Council, could sit and talk to both Russia uh, and to the United States. We have, um, over time, proven ourselves to be a bridge builder. We've also been a country that has had very open uh, channels of communication with countries in Africa, as well as the more uh, developed world, if we think of our role in Brussels. Why do I mention, let's say, Africa and Brussels? Because I think it shows that we're a country that's both empathetic as well as capable of using our influence and what people see as more challenging quarters like the great European Union uh, table where we our footprint is very deep now and we're one of the most experienced members. Our friends in Africa have always regarded Ireland's historical heritage as a country that was colonized, that knows migration, that knows poverty and famine. That has given us, um, if you like, a, a platform that expresses itself in our relationships with countries from zones that are conflict-ridden or that are challenged. So we bridge, uh, in a way, uh, both a modern, economically uh, successful country with a country that has known what it feels like when times are difficult, and particularly uh, when uh, there's conflict in our own society. I think we need to keep true to our own authentic self in all of that. Ireland is, of course, militarily neutral, but we've never been neutral in principle. And I think that's one of the important messages I leave you with. As I was on the Security Council one day introducing our Taoiseach to a very senior uh, representative, it was actually to the Secretary of State of the United States, a diplomat said, uh, Secretary, this is the Irish Taoiseach, when we look at Ireland on the Security Council, we see the conscience of the Security Council. And for me, that enveloped so much and was such a compliment. We stand up, we speak out on issues, no matter what it costs us, but we're also agile and effective in terms of helping our friends and trying to deliver um, when, it re when it reflects our principles and our values. And I think that's what I would say uh, to the next generation, your generation, Stephen. Um, we should stand up and speak out for our values, knowing that we have, over the last hundred years of diplomacy, built up a credibility that allows us to do that. Very good. That's great advice, Ambassador. Um, thank you very much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure talking to you too, Stephen. Have a good day there. That was our interview with Ambassador Geraldine Byrne Nason. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast. <laughs>